Let's just bow, shall we, for a moment of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way you have provided for us. And we thank you for your word that does give to us clear direction. Lord, we know that we would know so much of that which you wish to teach us, that which is the will of God, if we only knew your word better. And we realize, Lord, that in many ways we as Christians find ourselves slothful and unwilling to listen to the direction you have given us. And when the crisis strikes, so often we're unprepared. So help us, Lord, to be disciples of yours, to sit at your feet, and to be ready for every eventuality of life. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we might learn tonight something that will, will really instruct us and keep us in the very center of your own will. We'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we began to talk about this matter of discipleship, first of all, in the Gospels and learning what Christ did to disciple men to himself. And then we started looking in the book of Acts to see what happened after the leader was gone and after the men had been entrusted to the power of God's Holy Spirit. And we have looked at a number of aspects of discipleship from the book of Acts and when we left off before we had an interruption, um, we were talking about separation and the disciple from Acts chapter 19. This, of course, was the founding of the church at Ephesus. And there was a very interesting circumstance that took place, and I just want to start reading in verse 8. It says, He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for the space of three months, a three-month period of time, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. That is, God's rulership on the earth. But when some were hardened, when it became evident that there were some that just plain turned their back upon the truth of the message and believed not, that's a word that really means they could not be persuaded, but spoke evil of that way before the multitude, they became somewhat hostile. He, Paul, departed from them. He separated himself from them and separated the disciples disputing daily in the school of one Tyrrhenius, and this continued for the space of two years, so that all they who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now we talked about the occasion of this separation. We talked about Paul's message, that both the substance and the scope of that message. We talked about his method, uh, that of going to the synagogue first, bringing the gospel to the Jew first, and... Uh, giving it a, a reasonable amount of time of patient instruction, uh, disputing, persuading, talking with the people concerning the things uh, that have to do with God's leadership. But when, there, when it became plain uh, that there was a hardness of heart and an attitude of mind that, that even led to the speaking of evil, the attack of the physical, uh, and as well as a verbal attack of the Apostle Paul, he, he made a separation, a separation from those that had refused the truth to those uh, with those who would listen to the truth. And we talked then about the object of that separation. We said, first of all, that there was an obvious uh, reason for it. One was to uh, avoid physical violence. And then secondly, to demonstrate 
that the church of Jesus Christ was indeed a separate society, not just a variation of the Jewish synagogue. Make it very clear uh, the separating power of the gospel. And then thirdly, to open the gospel to the Gentiles, for uh, the obligation to the Jew had been cared for, and uh, the message then must go on to the Gentiles. And it's right there where we stopped last time. There is another uh, object of the separation that we want to talk about, but let's just pause for a moment and talk about this matter of the gospel going to the Gentiles. Now realize that the first obligation in, those, in that early church was to take the gospel to the Jew. And I might say that in that first century that was fully fulfilled. There's no sense today in which we have to come to a city and first of all go to the Jewish synagogue and try to preach. That uh, has been done. It's been accomplished. And there is a turning point in the book of Acts where this is no longer uh, done. Not that the gospel is not for the Jew today, but the Jew now must receive it on equal terms with the Gentiles simply because the, 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 the rejection of the gospel in a twofold witness was given by the Jews. First of all, they rejected Jesus Christ the Messiah. He came unto his own, his own received him not. And then continually in the book of Acts, he reje they rejected the message of the gospel. Wherever the gospel went and began to penetrate the Jewish society, there was the, there was the leadership of the Jews, the, the, the bulk of the Jewish people who turned their back upon the message of the gospel. It was made very, very clear to Peter and uh, then accomplished through Paul that the message was a message that was universal, a message that must go to the Gentiles as well. And so the Apostle Paul did his, if you please, his obligation in taking the gospel uh, to those Jewish people, but they were apostate Jews. They were not Jews that were true sons of Abraham in the sense that the believer in Jesus Christ is today because they refused the greater son of Abraham, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of that kind of hostile apostasy that was evident, Paul separated the brethren from uh, the, uh, the Jews there in the synagogue, and these would be Jewish people, and began then to use the lecture hall of Tyrrhenius and gave the Gentiles an opportunity to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he went to a, to a, new, uh, a neutral place, to a neutral lecture hall, he rented an auditorium. Valley Church, you know, began in a storefront 20 years ago. And uh, uh, they just rented a, a store in the shopping center. And that's where it all began. And one of the main reasons that they began in the first place was because the, the message of truth was being denied and rejected even hostily by many of the churches where some of the people who were the founding fathers of the church had gone. And they just couldn't go it anymore. They came to the place where the three months were up. And they realized that they were in the midst of apostates who had turned their back upon the truth. And so therefore, they separated themselves. And that is biblical. And I'll say it to you right now. I can say this safely. If you find that Valley Church ever turns from the truth of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we turn from that message of the infallible word of God, and preach the crucified, risen, coming again Savior, a Savior who in his birth was virgin born, if we fail to preach that message, you owe it to yourself and to your family. After given enough time to make sure that that's what we've done, indeed rejecting those things, 
you owe it to everybody to get out. And what I hope, as Sandy Morton often prays, that, Lord, if we ever stop preaching this message, shut the doors. And I hope that uh, even if the doors aren't shut, that there won't be any people that will walk through them. If there's ever that denial of the truth of God from this place. Now, I just say that. I can do that, see, because we have no intention of changing. But I think that we all need to recognize that that is an obligation in which we find ourselves after given a, a, a select amount of time. There is every reason in the world to separate, separate ourselves from apostasy and go find a store somewhere where we can start again with the truth of the gospel. I shared with the men the, a couple weeks ago that a church I was associated with in Montana had a, a legal situation, and they, it was one of these things where they worked hard with a lawyer and got the thing all tied up. And the, the thrust of the thing is that their doctrinal statement is identical to the doctrinal statement of Dallas Seminary. Exactly, to the word, just exactly the way they have it at Dallas. And uh, what they have said is that if, in the event that that doctrinal statement is changed in any way, shape, or form, then immediately all of the assets of the church are sold and the money given to an organization that has that doctrinal statement. In other words, they put themselves out of business if they change their doctrine. And the reason for that was the same thing. Because so many of these people had come from churches, you know, in the old days in Montana, and that wasn't true in California, but in the old days in Montana, they used to allocate territories to denominations. And the state of Montana was allocated to the Methodists and the Congregationalists. And the Congregationalists, at the time they were allocated, was very liberal, and uh, that doesn't mean all congregational churches are liberal, but that particular group was definitely liberal. And the Methodists were fast becoming liberal. And uh, so no one else supposedly was supposed to be able to come in there. And they had a corner on the state for a long, long time until a fellow by the name of Feeney came in, or Feely, Feely came in, and began a radio ministry called the Montana Gospel Crusade. And the ministry of the Montana Gospel Crusade eventually became known as the ministry of the Church of the Air. And the Church of the Air was now the Billings Bible Church, and that's the church that we were associated with in Montana. They were the first ones to break the ice. And you could safely say that 98% of all of the residents in the state of Montana at that time were in apostate churches. Very little of gospel preaching. My mother was raised in a church where she never once ever heard the gospel until my father came to town and started a little Baptist church. That was against the rules, but he did it anyway, and she was saved as a result. But many of these churches, and a lot of Bible churches across the state of Montana, many of them began in, in stores or in homes or wherever they could find a room in a lecture hall of Tyrrhenius. By the way, anybody that says that the church in the New Testament or in the book of Acts was always a home church, they ought to read this chapter. They never had it in the home. They had it in the synagogue, and then they moved to a building, a building that they rented. They never did meet in a home in the city of Ephesus. So uh, you get that idea out of your head right away. There's nothing wrong with a church building. As long as you don't believe the building is the church. The church is the people. The building is just a place to meet. And uh, so therefore, this is what we're faced with here. The Apostle Paul was wise enough at a precise time to pull the congregation out. 
Those that had believed separated from those that refused to believe because they could have more fertile soil, reaching others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the fourth and most important of all reason why the Apostle Paul took those people out of that church was this. It was to instruct the converts systematically. Now you see, there was a great difference. Paul came into the synagogue to preach the gospel. There was only one message that he could give. You see, they started out with uh, virtually no converts. And uh, he came in and found a, a group of people who were baptized in the baptism of John. That is, they had, they had turned from their sinful ways and had uh, believed that they ought to turn toward God. They had had a change of mind in their attitude of their relationship with God. But they didn't know about Christ. They were saved, apparently, in the Old Testament sense. That is, they had believed the Old Testament message of repentance that John the Baptist had given, and then they went back to Ephesus. And they were working away there, still being as good a Jew as they could be, but they were disciples of John. And Paul found those people, preached the gospel to them, told them who Jesus Christ was, and uh, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and uh, that gave him a core group. And they continued for three months' time evangelizing. And at the end of that three months' time, the evangelization had reached, a, a public evangelization had reached a saturation point. That is, that the line had been drawn. And there were those that said, yeah, I'll buy that. And there were those that said, no way. And so it was a very clear delineation. And now came the time for change. As that's true of every church that begins. When a church begins in a community, one of the first things you have to do is have some evangelism. If you don't have any believers to start with, you've got to get some people saved. And so therefore, it's not wrong for a church to emphasize for a period of time or in special circumstances the message of the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with that. But there comes a point at which the line is drawn and you have the core group of people who say, yes, we believe. And it is a fallacy to continue to preach the ABCs of the gospel to that group of people. Evangelism goes into phase two. And it becomes the responsibility of personal evangelism on the part of individuals, as we've seen already when we talked about discipleship and soul winning. It becomes a matter of personal involvement. But in order to do that, you have to build up the sheep so that they can reproduce. And at that point in time, the, the, the message of the gospel is as relevant as ever. And at times, it is, it is important to stress it, just to remind people of it, and also to pick up some of those individuals who may not be believers yet, because 1 Corinthians tells us in chapter 14 that that does happen in a church situation. So you want to have the gospel woven into messages from time to time. But the thrust of the church of Jesus Christ is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And therefore... There is a matter of, 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 of daily teaching the, the, the Word of God to these people. Now, if you'll look in verse 10, you'll see what happened here. Uh, verse 9, first of all, it says, He separated the disciples, and it says, Disputing daily. 
Now, the word dispute is D-I-A-L-E-G-O-M-A-I. Legeomai means to think, and dia means through. Therefore, it's the idea of forcing people to think through. Now, that gets back to that basic concept of the church. You see, most people do not come to church to think through anything. I had a, I read an article the other day that that uh, the fellow says, you know, I, I had, I, I, I had a, uh, he told his pastor, he said, I have had a busy week and and uh, uh, I, I'm very, very tired on Sunday and. And uh, he says, believe me, when I come to church, I don't come to think. He says, I come, I, I want you to just make me feel good. And, uh, you know, the, the scripture does say that we're to comfort the afflicted. And we're also to afflict the comfortable. And I think this fellow needed the second treatment. And I, 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 I can just, you can't just hear that, you know. I, I didn't come to think through anything. I didn't come to concentrate. But you see, uh, the, the, the concept of the church that the New Testament teaches is that of it being a, a training station, a equipping station, a teaching station, a place where people are expected to think. And over and over again in Scripture, we're committed to think. Concentrate your attention on these things. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honorable, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good report, concentrate your attention on these things. Lehman Strau uh, uh, Richard Strauss uh, in uh, Aberdeen, Scotland, I only heard the last message, but uh, he did a fascinating study in the book of Philippians where he took all of the words for think in the book of Philippians, and showed that the that the, the the Christianity demands people to think. The whole book of Philippians uh, has about uh, oh, I think six or seven different words for mind or think or different usages of words in regard to this. And we're to have a healthy mind. We're to have a holy mind. We're to have a have a helpful mind. We're to have a humble mind. Uh, and so on, down the line. These things that are found in the book of Philippians. It's fascinating. Fascinating way to look through that book. I'm going to have to preach through Philippians all over again. That's just got me all warmed up. But uh, the idea is it's thinking. And you see, Christians need to learn to think. And so what Paul did was he, he caused people to, to think. He expressed different things and he made people think. But not only that, it says, and this continued for the space of two years. But we missed a little word there in verse 9. I'm sure we missed it. I didn't miss it because I, I circled it in my Bible, so I wouldn't miss it. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you ought to circle it too. Notice, he did it daily. Daily teaching. Now you say, hold it. Woo. Boy, that's a big load. Well, you know what Paul did? Here was his schedule. Of course, he was an unmarried man. He could get away with this. But he got up at daybreak and began making tents until 11 o'clock. And in the, when the morning debates in the school of Tyrrhenius were open, over, then at about 11 o'clock, he went to the school of Tyrrhenius and probably the women gathered. 
And he had a women's class until a, until a little bit later, until the men got off work. And the men would work from daybreak until uh, about the middle of the afternoon in the time of heat. Uh, and, uh, and then they would come, and then he would just continue to teach them. Now, uh, probably on the average, he taught them till about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That's generally when things broke up. But in the book of Thessalon uh, Thessalonians, we read that he taught them night and day, which would indicate that, he, that at uh, Thessalonica, at least, he continued through the night. He was only three Sabbath days in Thessalonica, and that was his schedule. He had three weeks of meetings, seven days a week, ministering uh, the, the Word of God to those people. And we're not told when the cutoff time was, but the idea of it being daily would indicate it was daytime. We do know that Paul often spoke late into the evening because there was a fellow by the name of Eutychus who went to sleep in his service and uh, stands as an everlasting example of why you shouldn't sleep in church because he fell out of the balcony and uh, Paul had to raise him from the dead. But uh, <clears throat> it kind of broke the meeting up temporarily, but then he kept on teaching. He says that he was long. He was long teaching there. It wasn't a matter of it just being a, a short little message. He was really giving it to them. So Paul had, Paul had a regular ministry of teaching. Now you say, well, does that mean then that the church of Jesus Christ should do that today? Let me say several things. First of all, remember the book of Acts records what happened. It does not necessarily tell us what we must do. But the, the epistles tell us what we must do. And the epistles do not say that we should have daily teaching, but the epistles do say this. The epistles said that you are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together with other believers, as the manner of some is. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. The fact is that as we get closer and closer to what we believe is the end times, and who could, who could doubt it after the events of these last weeks, that we are facing crisis in these days, there is the need in a time like that for a crash program of preparation for people to understand the Word of God. And because of that, the, the principle of daily teaching isn't a half bad idea. You say, well, I couldn't make it every night. Of course, these people probably couldn't make it every night either. But the concept and the idea of having the teaching available for those who can get it is a correct one. We'll get that building finished. You're going to see some of that around here. Because we're right now in the process of scanning over the, the idea and the thought of having available a whole lot more teaching than we are, than we are now. Wednesday night, as an example, we're going to an elective program, hoping to start that the first of the year. But we hope that we can offer some electives on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights and, and some other nights of the week and uh, just have a lot of teaching available. We don't care how big the classes are. You notice it doesn't say anything. Uh, Paul didn't get into the numbers game. It wasn't a matter of how many people were in each group, how many people came daily. But the point is, the teaching was made available to those who wished to have it, so there'd be no excuse. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now the principle that Paul was after was both the principle of Ephesians chapter 4, pastor-teacher equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, and also 2 Timothy 2.2, the things that thou hast learned of me among many witnesses... The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others, to teach others, to teach others, to teach others, to teach others. And I've been here seven years. And at the end of seven years, that's the perfect number or the complete number. 
And I hope that we have some mature people who will be able now to teach others what they've learned. And we're hoping that what we can do is see the multiplication process involving the mature believers of Valley Church being involved in teaching others. Nothing I'd like better than to have a bunch of you be able to teach the subject of discipleship from your framework. You've heard it from the Scripture as I've presented it. We've done some defining. We've done some honing in on this whole thing. And some of you have been there every week, faithfully taking it in, taking notes, getting it down. Who knows? Maybe next time around when we need a course on discipleship, God will lay His hand on you to teach one some other night of the week. Or maybe on Wednesday night while I'm teaching something else or something like that. The idea is, though, that there is a desperate need for teaching. And most believers are spiritual ignoramuses. They know a few of the basics and they can spell them off to you. But when they get beyond that, they don't have a clue. And what God wants is is equipped saints. And in the process, we have to be very, very careful that we don't do like happened at the city of Ephesus, that we don't lose our first love. That we don't let the information grow stagnant in our heart where it's simply making us spiritual fatheads. Taking it all into the cranium, learning a lot of facts, and not letting it affect the life. Through it all, we have to recognize that there is a purpose and a reason to be lived out through the life of the truths that we hear. So it's a big job. But it was a tremendous job that Paul accomplished. And so the primary reason for separating the believers from those that had refused the message of the gospel was because he wanted to be in the business of teaching and equipping the disciples so that they could reproduce in evangelism and so that they could edify one another in love as a result of the teaching that they had. And this went on for two years. And what happened? Look at it. The outcome is in verse 10. It says, so that all, notice that big word, A-L-L, all, so that all they who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. I'm not going to be satisfied, and I say this in all sincerity, I am not going to be satisfied that my teaching ministry has penetrated the way it should into the hearts and the lives of the believers in this community until every person in this community has heard the gospel of Christ and heard it intelligently presented by a Christian who is mature and able to communicate his faith. I believe with all my heart that that is the outcome that we should have and we should never be satisfied until that's accomplished. And in two years' time, Paul taught and the whole world knew about it. Because these believers would not shut up about the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The graduates from the Bible school called the first Bible church of Ephesus... That Bible school that is the Ecclesia, that church, the the graduates from that school spread the word, established disciples. Evangelism, of course, was the natural outcome, and there was the exposure of the Jews and the Gentiles to the Word of God. What an impact! 
and how far short we fall. Let's not get smug, huh? Be awfully easy, you know. Man, you know, we got big crowds coming, you know. You can even get a big crowd on Wednesday night when you spin off of a tragedy in the community, you know. You noticed that last week. So, you know, we, we could sit here and say, boy, you know, we're really doing pretty good. Because I can tell you right now, we're doing better than we were when we started. We're doing a whole lot better than a lot of other churches. But guess what? Let's not get smug. We ain't begun yet. We're not even off the ground. Because I know there's a lot of people where you work, a lot of people in your neighborhood that have never heard the true claims of Jesus Christ. So let's not get smug. Let's realize we've got a good start, but we're only just beginning. Now, in summary, what does this point out to us? Separation from groups that reject the truth of the message of God's Word is legitimate and right. There's nothing wrong with it. Whether it's this church or some other church, there's nothing wrong with it. If the message of the truth is being rejected or compromised, we have every reason in the world to get out. When apostasy or false doctrine is found, it not only is right, but it is incumbent upon the faithful to remove themselves from one group and come together for the purpose of studying the Word of God. This is not intended to produce isolationism. Separation is not isolation. You are in the world, but you are not of the world, as Christ made very clear in his high priestly prayer in the 17th chapter of John. You are in the world, you are not of the world. There's nothing wrong with you being in the world. If the world gets into you, you've got a problem. And there is nothing wrong with you associating with those who have turned from the truth for the purpose of winning them, but you must not let them influence you. You have to pull them your way rather than them pulling you their way. I've always opposed the idea of, of this business of saying, uh, well, if you go to my church with me, I'll go to church with you, where one person is going to an apostate church. It's wrong. But there's nothing wrong with developing a friendship with a person who is an unbeliever or who even has rejected the gospel with the purpose of trying to win them. The program that is presented in the book of Acts, in particular in the, in the city of Ephesus, is not a program of negative reaction. We don't become fighters against. Now, there are things to be against. And Scripture tells us how to handle those things. But we do not become reactionaries. We are not individuals who stand up and, and begin to, to get into the fray and get into the fight and try to set, our, set the whole world straight. It's not right. You notice that Paul does not condemn or denounce his opponents. Now, they were wrong, dead wrong. They did not line up with truth. But Paul didn't waste his time being negative and talking against them. He presented positive truth. Now, positive truth sometimes is in a negative framework. There are negatives in the Scripture. But we never become negative toward people, only toward the false concepts. He doesn't even dwell on their error. He doesn't spend a long time going into the, the problems of Judaism. He simply proclaims the truth of Scripture, gets the message across to those that are believers. 
And so there are three very basic principles that can be drawn. The principle of daily teaching, which as you can see, is an important idea. The principle of the church being, if you please, the Bible school is inherent in this. And the principle of a taught church being an evangelistic influence in the community. All of that as a result of true biblical separation. Now there are those, and I just need to say this, there are those that call themselves separationists. And by separationist, they often mean that they are fighting everything that they don't agree with. And I think that we have to be very, very careful that we never fall into that trap. That's not how Paul conducted his ministry. Rather, it was a very positive ministry of teaching the Word of God. All right, now that concludes that aspect, but it's too early to go home. So uh, we need to explore something a little bit further. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 11. I realize we're not going in uh, chronological order here. Uh, We're going in uh, sort of a logical order to some degree. Just turn to Acts 11, and then let me set the scene here. There's a growing question that continually arises in the midst of teaching on discipleship. It's a question that you would expect to hear from any group where you would have a discipleship ministry where you're trying to disciple others to Jesus Christ. And the question is, what should be the believer's relationship with the society in which he now lives? In other words, how, how did the people in Ephesus really penetrate their society so that all heard? What was it that made such a difference? Now, this is answered in part in the Gospels, where Christ told his disciples, as we mentioned a moment ago, that they were in the world, but not of the world. If you take John 17, 11, where Christ says that they are not of the world, in John 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 14, um, where it says that they are, are uh, let's see, it's in verse 11, it says they're in the world, and verse, seven, uh, verse 14 says they are not of the world. And then also in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, where, where it says that if they were of the world, then the world would not hate them. But because they are not of the world, the world hates them even as they hate me. And so uh, there is the, the concept there and really the balance that we're in the world, but not of the world. And then, of course, it also is uh, given in the Gospels where Christ describes them in Matthew 5.13 as salt and warns them that their salt should have a savor to it, lest it just be trodden underfoot of men, that men despise it. And then in the same chapter, in verse 14 through 16, he tells them that you are lights, and you're not to hide your light under a bushel. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. All of that has to do in the Gospels with the the effect that the Christian should have in his own society. It's answered also in part in the epistles, where the disciple is told, uh, just to give you some examples, how to uh, how to manage a, a perverse employer. First Peter chapter two verses eighteen through twenty. You're to love him to death. 
and uh, how to respond to civil authority and obedience, Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. How to be a good employee in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 25, the concept and idea of not serving with eye service as men pleasers, but you serve the Lord Christ, that everything you do, even the employment, even where you work, is that which should be honoring to the Lord. So you should do a better job than the unbeliever, rather than a worse job. As well, uh, we have the concept in the epistles of being a witness, where in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, uh, Paul says to the Philippian church that, uh, that they are to uh, be harmless and without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You're to have a witness and the impact of that witness. So you see, the, the Word of God has a lot to say about the concept of penetrating our society with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now, you can't help but be impressed with the simplicity with which Luke records this concept in one single verse, actually a part of a verse, just the end of a verse in Scripture. And the scope of the meaning in the book of Acts and how it's lived out in the book of Acts, demonstrating indeed that this is, this is the way that the New Testament believers looked at their influence on society, and it's the way that society looked upon the influence of the church at that time. Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. And when they found him, he, when he had found him, this is Barnabas finding Saul or Paul, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that for a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught many people, again, that principle of teaching, for a whole period of a year. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. You say, well, what does that have to do with their relationship with society? Well, let's talk about it. As you read various writers commenting on the book of Acts, you're going to find a difference of opinion in regard to the significance of that name Christian. Wycliffe Commentary, as an example, says, there is no adequate reason to think that the term was used in derision. It simply means people who follow Christ. But G. Campbell Morgan, on the other hand, quotes Professor Lumby, who says, it is a Greek word with a Latin termination. In that, I think, is evidence of the fact that it was a name given to these men by Antioch. It, it was certainly not chosen by a Jew, for to him Christian would have meant a man of the Messiah. And he would object entirely to that description of those of the Nazarene sect. It was certainly not a name chosen by the Christians themselves, for they designated themselves disciples, brethren, those of the way, and other designations, but never had called themselves Christians. It has been said that it was a nickname, and that it was given to them as a title of contempt. That may be so. That's Professor Lumby. Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out that Agrippa used the term in Acts 26, 28, when he said, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. That's a sarcastic remark, incidentally. He's not saying, I'm almost persuaded, as the song so beautifully says. But rather, he is saying, Do you think in truth that you're going to persuade me to be a Christian? You know, in other words, big deal. Just try, mister. There's no way. That's the idea behind it, all right? And so it was used as a term of derision by Agrippa. 
He points out as well that Peter referred to this term in 1 Peter 4.16 as suffering as a Christian and therefore identified it with the persecutors. And the result is that uh, we have to conclude that this name and the conclusion that Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown have is that this name originated outside the church itself. Barclay says this, The word Christian began by being a nickname. The people of Antioch were famous for their facility in finding jesting jesting nicknames. Incidentally, um, Barclay is sort of a semi-liberal, okay? But he's done some of the best work on backgrounds, historical backgrounds, of uh, New Testament incidents that you can find. You have to be a little bit careful because he depreciates the miracles, even the miracles of Christ. You have to just kind of watch it a little bit. But at the same time, he has some tremendous backgrounds. And he has a Bible study book, uh, little books out on every book of the Bible, of the New Testament. And so therefore, it's it's a handy little thing to have for reference. But anyway, so I'm quoting Barclay here. He says, the people of Antioch, and this is really an interesting insight, were famous for their facility in finding jesting nicknames. They were known for this. Later, the bearded emperor Julian came to visit the city, and they christened him the goat. That's typical of the kind of thing that they would do. He says that the termination, I-A-N-I, means belonging to the party of. For instance, Caesarea and I means belonging to Caesar's party. So he says Christian means these Christ folk. It was a half-mocking, half-jesting, wholly contemptuous nickname. Now, as you go through the the New Testament, and particularly in the book of Acts, you see a number of names for Christians, or for those that were believers in Christ. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, they are called uh, hoi sosminai, the saved. In chapter 6, verse 1, they were called, Methetai, disciples, and many other places as well. In chapter 9, verse 13, they were called the Haggai, or the saints. In chapter 9, verse 30, they were called Adelphoi, or the brethren. In chapter 10, verse 45, they were called Pistoi, or believers. In chapter 22, verse 4, they were called Tain Hodan, or the way, or this way. We also called that in chapter 24, verses 14 and 22. In chapter 24 and verse 5, they were called the Nazaroi, or the Nazarenes. Incidentally, that name survived clear at least till the 4th century that they were called Nazarenes. That's not the denomination of Nazarenes. They were called Nazarenes or of the Nazarene because they were uh, they thought of Christ as the one from Nazareth. In chapter 27 and verse 3, they were called Philoi or friends. Again, that's not the denomination friends, uh, but uh, it, it was just what they called each other. But it was in Antioch that they first were called Christians. And as far as the New Testament records, it is only found in two other places. First of all, it's found uh, after this in in Agrippa's uh, saying almost, thou persuadest me to be a Christian. 
And then it's found in 1 Peter where it's talking about suffering as a Christian. But other than that, it was never used as a term to refer to believers. Paul never said to the Christians who were in Ephesus or to the Christians who were in Philippi. He always said to the, to the believers or to the saints or to the faithful. But he never said to the Christians. So it was not a term of common usage among those that were believers. But now what we want to do in this study, and we won't finish it tonight, we'll just get started on it, is we want to search out three things in the text. We want to find what the source of this name was, then the significance of the name, and the success of the name as we think in terms of its common usage today. Antioch, the city of Antioch, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a cosmopolitan center. Alexander's conquest of the Persian Empire put Syria at the center of the Hellenistic world, or the Greek world, strategically placed between three great centers of power, Macedonia, Egypt, and Babylonia. Josephus claims that in this city, made, uh, made up largely of Greeks and Macedonians, that the Jews enjoyed full citizenship rights, a rare occurrence. It was a wicked city. Much of its population were either active or discharged soldiers, and idol worship and its subsequent idolatry and immorality was rampant. The persecution which arose because of Stephen's martyrdom in Acts chapter 7 drove many of the Christians out of the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, and many of them went to Antioch. Chapter 11, verse 19, uh, simply says, Now they who were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but to the Jews only. So the ministry of these people was to the Jews. Again, that principle of to the Jew first. They had not as yet reached out to the Gentiles and their ministry, in their ministry. Later, in Acts chapter 11, verse 20, there were some that came from Cyprus and Crete, some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they were come to Antioch spoke unto the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. These were believers that had probably been saved in the day of Pentecost, had had a chance to grow a bit, and uh, they, uh, they were people who, who had a message not only for Jew but for the Greeks as well. And they began to preach generally, and they had a certain amount of success. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and great numbers believed and turned to the Lord. There was fertile soil among those pagan people. Now news of this breakthrough um, got to the church in Jerusalem. And desiring to be some, of some assistance, they sent the son of consolation, Barnabas, to teach. And you'll remember that he would be familiar with these people because he, the leaders that had come from Cyprus and Cyrene simply because uh, he had lived uh, there. And so when he arrived, he noted, note what it says in verse 22, that the grace, or verse 23, that the grace of God was in their life. When they came and had seen the grace of God, that is what God had done on merited favor, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cling unto the Lord. Now notice, Barnabas' ministry, as we said earlier, like Paul, uh, centered to the believer. As well as evangelism, he centered upon the believer. So when he arrived, he saw the grace of God was evident in their lives. He was glad. He exhorted them all. His exhortation was not a repeating of the gospel, but rather was the, the uh, uh, encouragement of them 
to get closer to the Lord. And, incidentally, this is a great passage on follow-up of converts. You think of it for a moment. You see that the grace of God has reached them in salvation. And your exhortation to them is that with purpose of heart they would cling unto the Lord. There's a great follow-up message for new believers. All right. Now, in verse 24 is a description of Barnabas' character. For he was a righteous man, or uh, the King James has good, and really good is better than righteous, and some of the modern translations have righteous, because the word is agathos, which is the word that, uh, that means good in character and beneficial in effect and had to do with, with him being characteristically good, that is, in the conduct of his life. He was a good man, and he was full of the Holy Spirit, had the evidence of the filling of the Spirit, which would include the fruit of the Spirit, and he was full of faith as well. That can involve both the trust in God and the faithfulness that results from it. And what happened? Well, many people were added onto the Lord. Here's a man exhorting the Christians to cleave to the Lord, and the result is evangelism. Isn't that interesting? Now, we don't know that Barnabas did much evangelism himself at all, but he was encouraging Christians. Evangelism resulted, part of the ministry of disciples. So, many people were added unto the Lord. Now, in verse 25, Barnabas was so impressed with the impact of the gospel and the opportunities that he had there in in Antioch, uh, and knowing that he needed some help on it, undoubtedly, he went to Tarsus and brought Paul back with him. Paul is a comparatively new convert, and he and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, ministered in a teaching ministry for a year. It was out of this situation that the title arose because they were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, it showed two things. First of all, the people in Antioch recognized the church to be a distinct and separate entity, not just a sect of the Hebrews, but rather a new society which, in their opinion, demanded a name all of its own. Now, it did have a name. They were believers. They were the people of the way. They were the saved. They were brethren. uh, They were saints. They had those names. But those names would be meaningless to the average person there in the city of Antioch, especially those that were pagans. And so as a result, they dubbed them with a name, the name Christian, because they knew that these people were not Jews. They already had a name for the Jews. And uh, uh, they, they, they were called the people of the law, incidentally. And uh, they certainly were not pagans. They knew the difference there. And so they were a separate society. And, of course, the book of Ephesians makes it clear that that's indeed what takes place. The book of Galatians says the same thing, that the middle wall of our partition is broken down between Jew on one hand, Gentile on the other. And when a person receives Christ as Savior, he becomes a part of the church. And that is distinct from Jew and Gentile. They can be Jews, they can be Gentiles. Either one can get in by, by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But it is a separate society. It is a distinct society. And so they saw this. But secondly, they saw in the church something that made them dub the church with Christoi belonging to Christ. They were saying these people don't belong to the Jews. They don't belong to the pagan worship. They belong to Christ. I want to remind you of something. Our definition of disciple. You ought to know it by now. 
But it's simply this. A disciple of Jesus is one who is a follower of Jesus. A learner from him, his apprentice, whose conduct, philosophy, and way of life are completely identified with Jesus, who is continually instructed by Jesus, and is consistently involved for Jesus. Now that is not my definition. That is the definition that comes out of the understanding of what the, book, what the Gospels teach concerning what a disciple is. A disciple in the New Testament sense means that the person's conduct, philosophy, and way of life are completely identified with Jesus. And these people so lived that others were saying they must belong to Christ. In the early chapters of the book of Acts, when they saw that they were ignorant and unlearned men, and yet heard the glorious words that came out of them, and they knew they weren't drunk, they, they took knowledge of them that they indeed had been with Jesus. But now we have graduated from that stage of people saying, these men must have been with them. We are in the next generation because these people have never seen Jesus Christ. But his reputation has gone far and wide, and they are so completely identified with Christ that the pagans looking on said, they belong to Christ. Now, they meant it in, a in derision. But I think we have reason to believe that these people had an impact upon their society, even though they would mock at the name, they had an impact because they recognized that they were indeed disciples of Jesus Christ. Being called a Christian by the world was an outgrowth of being a disciple. It's the other way around today. People say, oh, I became a Christian. And then we start talking to them about the fact they ought to be a disciple. In this culture, they became disciples, and the result was they were so much like Jesus Christ that the world said, they are Christians. We've got it all screwed around today. We've got it all backward. We are to be followers of Christ so that others see Christ in us. Now that is where the name arose and why the name arose. And here at Antioch, they were first called Christians. Well, the next step is the significance of that name. What does it mean? Why did it come to these people? I think maybe we better stop right there, though. Because it's going to take us a little while to wade through some of the scriptures that are necessary to develop what happened in the book of Acts that eventually earned them this title, this nickname, Christian. May I challenge you tonight? Your responsibility as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be his disciple so that the world will take knowledge that you've been with Jesus. So they will so much see Christ in your life that they will want to embrace Him. Dr. Shepard, medical missionary, went to a little remote village in Armenia, poured out his life. The story goes that Dr. Shepard stayed up for as long as 
eight and nine days with no sleep, tending to the villagers almost tirelessly as a plague swept through the village, doing everything he could to save as many lives as he could. The result was he contracted the plague and died. Dr. Shepherd could not speak their language. He never was able to communicate the message of the gospel to them. All he could do was love them. The result? Well, a few years later, a missionary came to this village thinking that he would be the first missionary to set foot on that soil, not knowing of Dr. Shepherd. He did know the language, and he sat down with the people there in their village and began to tell them of Jesus Christ. After a few moments of sharing the message, one of the men spoke up and said, But sir, he's been here. He said, What? Been here? No, no, you, you've got it wrong. They said, No, we'll show you his grave. They took the missionary to the grave of this man that had been lovingly placed on the hillside and began to share what this man had done for the village without being able to speak a word and communicate with the people. He had done so much. And having heard just the bare skeleton outline of who Jesus Christ was, they had jumped to the conclusion that Christ had been there. Because as one person said, Christ's Spirit taketh life again within the lives of holy men. Each changing age beholds afresh its word of God in living flesh. Do you so live Jesus Christ that it becomes a matter of mistaken identity? That people think mistakenly that they've actually seen Christ when they hear the description of him. There are aspects of the person of Jesus Christ that we could never live out. He's a risen Savior. He was perfect. Never was guile found in his mouth. He did no sin. So those are some of the things that you could never reproduce in your life. But by the power of God's Holy Spirit, your life can become so Christ-like that others will see Him in you. That's what Paul meant when he said that he wanted Christ to be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. That's what he meant for, when he said, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's what he meant near the end of his life when he said that I may know Him the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. We too must have and earn, if you please, that title, Christian. Father, thank you for your word. Use it to break away the veneer that so often clings to us the put on, the hypocrisy, the pretending. 
Help that people see through us just as transparently as possible. And see not us, but see the risen Christ. May Christ be seen in me, O Lord. Hear thou my humble plea. O take me, fill me, use me, Lord, till Christ be seen in me. May it be so to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.